This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. It's great to be together today. Uh, My name is Craig. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. So it's great to have you with us. Let me just extend a welcome to you and say thanks for for being here. Uh, We are in a study in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, so today we'll be looking at uh, chapter 5 again. Um, If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under the seat in front of you, so you can grab that and you can turn to page 473, and we'll be reading along there. It'd be helpful for you just to be able to track with us uh, what we're covering from the passage today. Uh, Two weeks ago was the last time we were in this text, and the previous passage that we looked at It really is key for setting the context for what we're going to talk about today. So before I read today's text, let me just point back a few verses to Matthew 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus comes and he says, uh, this is his first teaching, as Matthew records, uh, and he's saying, uh, look, I'm not coming to do away with everything you read about. Uh, in the Old Testament. I'm actually fulfilling that. That's why I came. So what he's going to do next is going to walk through six sections dealing with various topics. We'll look at one today, various topics, and he's going to interpret the law and how to apply the law in these passages. He's saying he doesn't apply the law as the religious leaders of the day which were the scribes and Pharisees. In verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's coming to usher in the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, the reign of God. And he's saying, uh, basically, I am, I'm talking about a different kind of righteousness than the religious leaders are all teaching and modeling for you. And so what he's going to do is take six topics and show what that looks like. And he's going to start... Uh, in verse 21, verses 21 through 26. So this is God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the relevance of your word, which really pierces our hearts with real talk. And we pray today that as we look at this passage, that we would be appropriately convicted, appropriately encouraged, and appropriately filled with hope. Lord, most of all, we pray that we would see you and what you've done for us and that we would put our full confidence in your faithfulness to us today. So Lord, help us, and help us to apply this passage particularly in this season that we are entering. We trust you for this. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So what Jesus is doing here and with the five sections that follow is he is contrasting his, his application of the Old Testament with the religious leaders of his day. He is not contrasting his teaching with the Old Testament itself. For if he was doing that, if he is coming and he is undoing the law, then verse 17 is not true. Verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to, to not to abolish, but to fulfill. So he's not saying, hey, you heard the Ten Commandments. That's all wrong. That's not what's going on here. What he's doing is he is refuting what has been heard. He says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So you've, you, you've heard something about this. What have they heard? Well, they've heard application They've heard uh, how to understand, interpret, and apply the Scripture from religious leaders. He doesn't say it is written as if he is going against what is written. He's going against what has been interpreted. So, for instance, uh, some of these sections, he will actually quote the Scripture as it really is. And so we are to understand in that situation that they had some application of it that will be implied that was incorrect. At some times, he quotes things that aren't even in the Bible that they are teaching. So, for instance, look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, same thing, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the problem with that is the Bible does say you shall love your neighbor, but the Old Testament never said you shall hate your enemy. This was an oral tradition that was added by the religious leaders of, uh, that was practiced by them. So, excuse me, he is refuting their take and their tradition of the scripture. And he, he contrasts it with what he says. So in verse 21, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry. So he's saying, here's what I am saying to you. So in this section of six issues he's going to deal with, he starts with a pretty popular command, as the commands go, the prohibition to murder. Most people can get behind that one. Most people are supportive of the anti-homicide restrictions of the Ten Commandments. And most people are supportive of the command not to murder because uh, we grade ourselves pretty good on that one, uh, pretty well. We think, okay, I pretty much got an A in the category of taking human life. And oftentimes people will even use this as sort of a... um, a way of evaluating themselves. Maybe you're talking to someone about the Lord who doesn't know Christ, and, and they say, well, you know, kind of the way I think of it is when we die, we just stand before the Lord, and he weighs our good works, and he weighs our bad works, and if the good weighs more, then we're okay, and if the bad weighs more, then we're in trouble, and I think I'm pretty good. You know, I've, I've never killed anyone, and so I think we need to admit that's a pretty low bar to, in terms of moral uh, approval from God. Uh, I think Maybe we could raise that a bit, and Jesus is going to raise it a lot in this passage. So Jesus obviously opposes murder. He's not saying Moses heard God wrong on that murder thing. He opposes murder, but he comes at this command in a very different way. So he says, if you murder, you're liable to judgment. But not only if you murder, he says, he broadens it. I say to you, the one who is angry with his brother or his sister will be liable to judgment as well. So Jesus takes the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, but he goes under the surface. He goes to the motive. He goes to our interior heart. 
think of this passage and probably some of the other ones as well, like, a, like the image of an iceberg. An iceberg is, has what is visible to us uh, with an iceberg is what is above the water. But there's more ice under the water than is visible to us above the water in most cases. And Jesus is going below the waterline to reveal the ice below the iceberg or the sin below the murder. And he's saying anger is below the surface of murder. So you see that as an external action. And maybe you're keeping that. But let's look below the surface. And he says not only is there a judgment for murder, there's a judgment for anger. For anger is the cause of murder. Our anger is liable to judgment. So this is what he's doing. He's moving from external act to internal motive, to our desires. He's talking about our demands. He's going to talk in this passage about our evil thoughts towards other people as well. He's making a contrast between the sort of skin-deep righteousness of the Pharisees, the external compliance with the law. He's going below that, and he's going to the motives of the heart. And after all, this is the way the Old Testament is written to be interpreted anyway. He's not introducing a new way of interpreting it. And if you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, they're regularly calling out the people of God. Why are they calling them out? Well, one of the reasons they call them out is because Israel at so many times are just going through the motions and their heart is far from God. So externally, they're worshiping correctly, but internally, their heart is far from God. You know, that's why the scripture says obedience is better than sacrifice. God at one point says, you know, I'm just, get your sacrifices out of here. I'm offended by them. Why? Because there's no heart connection to them. They're just going through religious ritual worship, but their hearts are after other idols, other gods. And so the Old Testament has always not, has always been about motive. It's never been about just externally clean yourself up. And Jesus is bringing that application in very clear ways here, in a way that is different than the Pharisees. Jesus has come to fulfill not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Jesus is coming and saying, we need a heart transformation that goes below the waterline and is concerned with the the motive rooted in the heart. He comes to fulfill the spirit of the law, whereas the Pharisees, they have mastered living by the letter of the law. They've mastered external show, external compliance. They even introduced new rules and regulations that they manage and master. So they've, mold, they've mastered the sort of external obedience thing. But the spirit of the law, oh, they're not so good on that. And we can, we can fall into the same trap. Even as Christians, we can take the teaching of Jesus and just do external and not go to the heart. We can take just the letter of the law and think we're okay because we obey that. I read this week about a guy I'd never heard of before named Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright is known for a couple things. One is he uh, lost in an election to the U.S. Congress. Um, he lost his seat to Abraham Lincoln. So he's known as a loser to a future president in an election, but he's probably better known as being a Methodist circuit rider. 
So back in the day, Methodist ministers, man, they were hardcore. The, the circuit riders were because you'd get on a horse and you would just ride long distances and preach and then you'd ride somewhere else and preach. And the, these ministers, they weren't in one location, but they would have it out in the Wild West, which, I mean, at this guy's time was probably like Kentucky or something. But they would go in the Wild West and they would travel uh, and preach. And so you had to be a hearty soul. And Peter Cartwright, he was, he was a dude. He was a hearty, hearty soul. Um, they say that he baptized 12,000 people um, over the course of his ministry. Well, one day he was preaching, and one of the people in the congregation or in the gathering <clears throat> wanted to know if he really believed what he taught. Did he really believe what Jesus taught, <clears throat> Excuse me, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount? Was he going to really hold Jesus' ethic? And so at the end, a guy walks up to him and just slaps him in the cheek. And Peter Cartwright, following Jesus, turned his other cheek. And the guy slapped him again on the other cheek, and he held his ground, amazingly. Then the guy hauled off and slapped him a third time, at which point Peter Cartwright gave the guy an uppercut to the face, knocking him out and saying, my Lord said nothing about a third slap. And... So, uh, I don't condone violence of any sort, but that was a crazy story, I thought. So, he was saying, hey, the Lord said, turn the other cheek. You're good for two slaps. After that, all bets are off. That is, that is following the letter of what Jesus said. It, that's not the spirit of what he said. And while most of us are not going to do slaps and punches as part of the letter of the law, we do so many other things where we just say, hey, as long as I can check off the thing I'm supposed to do, then what's below the surface, my heart isn't as important. So we might be able to check off, I'm reading my Bible regularly. But God, the goal is not just that I have in my schedule and I check off Bible reading. It's that my heart hungers to know God to encounter God, to know his truth, and to live for him, and to feed on his word because I will starve without it. That's very different. We may say, well, I'm trying to pray every day, and I can check it off my list. That is the external letter of the law we're supposed to pray. But the heart of the law is, I, I, of that is I'm desperate for God. I pray because why? The Bible says, we're, Jesus said we're to be poor in spirit. That's the first statement of the Beatitudes. That is, I recognize my need for God. So there's a very big difference on checking off daily prayer versus cultivating a heart that recognizes my need for God and cries out for his help in a way that honors him. Do you see that? There's the difference. So we all can do letter of the law, even as good gospel Christian people, and forget the spirit of the law, and that's what the Lord is addressing here. So what about righteous anger? Someone's always going to ask that, right? Uh, so let me go ahead and answer that question. What about righteous? He says, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I mean, doesn't Jesus get angry? That's usually what we say. Well, Jesus got angry, and I just have righteous anger like him. Well, a couple points. One would be that you're not Jesus, so that would be a helpful. It's always good to remember that reality. There is one God, and you are not him. There is one God. But secondly, when we look at Jesus' anger in the Bible, it differs from our anger so frequently. Jesus, so the classic example is the overturning of the money changers. Jesus was angry at injustice that other people suffered. That's what angered Jesus in that illustration in particular. What happened was, there was they, they needed to um, 
you know, they were doing sacrifices at the temple. And so the money changers, you could, if you came a distance, you could buy an animal and they would, uh, or you could make an offering and, and you could uh, trade your, your money, uh, your currency. Um, and so they set up in the area called the Court of the Gentiles. And so the reason Jesus is mad is this is the only area that a Gentile can come into the temple and pray. And so rather than this being a house of prayer for all nations, they're doing their business there. And the reason Jesus is angry primarily is because this is unjust to those who have access only in this area. Now they have no access. So there is a self-interest. There is a, you know, a focus on us and our custom and what we're going to do. They're probably overcharging as well because he said You're, this is a den of robbers. So they're probably overcharging. But, but the reason he's angry is because there is injustice being done to someone else. We tend not to be angry with a pure concern of love of neighbor who's being mistreated because of his or her race or their gender or their socioeconomic level or their vulnerability, something like that. We, we tend to be more, most of us, tend to be more angry, not about things that impact those, but things that impact me. We tend to be angry at the driver when we're treated unjustly and he cuts in front of us. We tend to be treated, we tend to be angry when there is an unjust call by the ref on my kid. What are you, blind? Right? I mean, how can you not see that? That's injustice, but that affects us, and we get hyper about that. Granted, these are smaller examples, but we tend to get angry because our spouse did that same thing again. We tend to be angry because our kid made such a mess. Again, how many times do I have to tell you, right? This anger towards them. We get angry towards that unreliable coworker who once again didn't get their part of the project done on time, and now I'm left being responsible for you, who your work ethic's like that of a kid, right? And so I'm having to carry all this, so we tend to be angry about that. And when we, uh, Jesus, on the other hand, is angry when someone else is harmed. When Jesus is personally harmed, how does he respond? When people spit on him, nail him to a tree, curse him, and kill him, his response, when he is harmed in a way worse than any of us could imagine, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But you harm the Gentiles who are vulnerable in this context, and he is angry about that. And so... One of the challenges is for us is that truthfully, when we are angry about injustice, it often morphs, not always, but often it morphs into a very self-interested anger. So think about a vulnerable population. Think about protecting children. Think about protecting children in the womb. Think about protecting children at the border. Think about protecting children. So we might get angry because children are uh, being um, harmed in some way. But what can happen is our anger can then morph. Because of our pride, we can then become ultimately angry with those who oppose our way of thinking. So as one author put it, we may deceive ourselves into thinking we are defending the truth, when deep down we are more concerned with defending ourselves. And so what happens is we're on 
the Lord's side, the Lord's heart to protect the vulnerable, and there's lots of categories of vulnerable. I just mentioned one, children. So we're on the Lord's side in terms of protecting the vulnerable, and we may start with something of a righteous anger in our heart, but, but it quickly changes. We say something about that on social media, and somebody says something back angry at us, and then they are the source of our anger. Then we are sort of defending ourselves against them. How could you think that? All you people think that. You're all like that. What happened to the children? Well, that's very secondary. Now it's these people that don't agree with me, that don't get it. Don't you get it? And there becomes this sort of very personal thing that can happen. Think about social media. Think about politics. Think about social issues. Think about theology. This happens with theology as well. So there is a place for righteous anger. I don't dismiss that. I want to say, first of all, we're not Jesus, so let's just check our hearts a bit that maybe I'm not 100% pure in my anger. And then secondly, when we do have an attitude of anger towards uh, vulnerable populations or injustice, let's channel that in an appropriate way through action, through prayer, through seeking to draw other people in to be a solution rather than uh, just spouting off anger towards people who don't see things exactly the way we do. Let's be careful about that so that there's something productive rather than something destructive. So is there a category for righteous anger? Yes. Is that's what's happening most of my days when my blood is boiling over something? Probably not usually for me. Uh, maybe, maybe you are far more holy and maybe that's more common for you. Um, it's not just anger in the heart that Jesus alerts us to, however. He also addresses our speech And this is where I was saying, when we get angry with people that differ, what are our words? He also addresses our speech. Look at what he says. He says in verse 22, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So uh, he is speaking here about how we speak. It says, whoever insults his brother um, or, or sister in the ESV. If you look at insults in the ESV, which I'm reading from, there'll be a footnote that says, says Raka. Whoever says Raka will be, you know, subject, will be liable to judgment. So again, we could feel like we're doing pretty well here, right? I've never murdered anybody. I've never said Raka, never tempted to say Raka. Now that you're going to find out what that word is, you may be, uh, and you may have said a synonym to it. But the word Raka uh, means empty-headed, it's, it's, it's insulting someone's intelligence. It means empty head. Uh, so calling someone stupid, calling someone an idiot, whatever kind of language would be reflective of you're empty headed, that you're a numbskull, that kind of a language. That's probably a dated term, but that kind of language. Um, that kind of person, you're subject to judgment of the council. Sanhedrin. Whoever calls someone a fool is liable to the judgment of hellfire. This is a shocking statement. And uh, I was not allowed to say fool growing up. I've talked about my mom some. She was very godly, one of the most godly people I've ever known. And this fool was the F word in our home. You could not say fool. That was a, that because, why? Because there's all kinds of cuss words, but Jesus said you go to hell if you say that one. Fool. So my mom was gracious. She was humble. She was godly. She was a student of the Bible. Her exegesis wasn't always flawless, but she loved the Lord and taught us. And on this point, we may have missed it. The, the, the real thing is not just don't say fool. The Bible says fool. The Proverbs talk about a fool a lot. 
What he's talking about here is not just this word is taboo. It's the heart that you would call someone uh, a fool. You are contemptuous towards someone. You're disregarding someone created in the image of God. Raka insults the mind. You're an idiot. Fool insults the heart or even the religion. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. So in Judaism, the fool was sometimes language for the unbeliever, the person who didn't know God, the person outside of relationship with God. So there is a place to say this is what the Bible says a fool is like in Proverbs. A fool vents his anger. A fool does all these. There's a place to say that. But to call someone, to charge someone as you don't even know God in a condescending, judgmental, angry, self-righteous kind of a way. To, to, it's like you're, you're worthless is almost what that sounds like. You're mentally uh, stupid. You're spiritually uh, fool, a fool. And so it's insulting someone's character with contempt and with hate. That's what he's talking about. He's not just don't say the word fool ever. It's this attitude of what's behind it that it's being used as an insult. To put someone in their place. That's the problem. 1 John 3.15 says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And this is murderous speech that Jesus is talking about here. Words kill. We live in a culture where hatred and vitriol and judgment and insults are so prevalent, so freely spoken, so freely given that we have lost all perspective on what God thinks about this. I mean, we do, it is the air we breathe is the, this kind of air of insult and judging other people and using language to belittle people. How does it, why is Jesus so concerned? How does it harm a person? Well, Jesus is speaking into a culture that is, a, that is a, a, an honor culture, a, a shame and honor culture. So to be shamed is very serious. It's, it affects someone's view of themselves, their status in the community. One author says, character assassination is just another type of murder. To kill someone's reputation, to kill their standing by unloading language on them like this is, is an act of, it, obviously it doesn't have the same results as taking someone's physical life, okay, obviously. But it is a form of killing because it does away with them, it hinders their, uh, their respect in, in the standing, maybe their self-respect. Maybe they're self. Maybe you're killing that person's own self-respect uh, and their respect in the community as well. And so we may not live in an honor-shame culture in the same way that Jesus did, the way that uh, many more Eastern cultures would, perhaps different than most Western cultures, might be a little bit different on this. But the point is still the same. We all are harmed by words and harm others with our words. Sinclair Ferguson said, we treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. That is why Jesus invades our moral slumber by telling us how serious this is in the sight of God. He uses language we readily understand. Anger incurs judgment. Using terms of contempt like empty head is worthy of condemnation by the highest court. Calling someone a fool fits us for hell, he says. 
But Jesus is going to plunge even deeper than this in this passage. Not only are we to avoid anger, not only are we to avoid insulting speech towards others, that's sort of playing uh, defense, we could say. I don't want to say this, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to kind of defend myself, you know, against acting in this way. But he also gives us a play for offense here. We're to take responsibility to reconcile with anyone who has an offense against us. That's what he says. It's not just don't do these things, but proactively be right with anyone you're not right with and cultivate healthy, godly relationships. So look at verses 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, here's what we can think about this. We can think that's not really that big of a deal. So, like, I come in, we start singing. He's talking about church, right? Temple, but saying, you know, uh, still worship of God. So, like, I come in, we sing a song, I look over, oh, man, that person's offended with me. So, what, would th- what should I do in this passage? We'll tap him on the shoulder, go out, get a coffee, go to the tower room, hey, please forgive me, get right, and come back in for the third song. That, that's how we think. I mean, it's serious, but just get right with them. These people that are hearing this heard this in a very different way. They live in Galilee. There's only one place that you can offer uh, a gift at the altar, a sacrifice at the altar. That's at the temple in Jerusalem where they would have traveled a few times a year. That's a week journey on foot. So he's saying you take a week's trip to the temple. Maybe you're carrying an animal for sacrifice, maybe. Uh, uh, You've got your kids you think traveling to grandma's house at Thanksgiving is tough? How would you like to travel a week on foot, okay, with the kids uh, to Jerusalem? So you get there, and uh, or maybe you buy your animal there. You save your money. You buy your animal from those money changers who shouldn't be standing in the court of Gentiles. And uh, you get up there. You purify yourself. You get up there to offer for the priest to offer your sacrifice. And as that's happening, a week, purification, money, all this... <gasps> ah, somebody's mad at me back home. So he's saying, leave right then your gift. Travel a week back. Go get right with the person. Travel a week back to the temple and then finish your worship. That's an outrageous response. Everybody would have been thinking, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? The reason it's outrageous to us is because we are so desensitized to the seriousness of relational sin. Loving relationships are at the heart of kingdom living. Jesus is coming and saying, this is how my kingdom works. And loving relationships is the heart of it all. We could say that love is the currency of the kingdom. It's preeminent. And he's saying, you can't worship the king publicly if you aren't going to love others privately. The priority has to be to come to worship the Lord. The priority has to be to love other people. They are connected. The vertical and the horizontal are connected here. If you know someone has something against you, make that right. That's the priority, Jesus says. The second illustration is about someone probably owing a debt to someone else. It says, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. 
truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this is probably going to court because you owe somebody. So he's saying if you're on your way to court and you owe somebody, get it settled now. Figure it out. Work it out. Cut a deal. Don't go in to get the judgment because what's going to happen? You're going to get thrown in prison, debtor's prison. And guess what? When you're in debtor's prison, you don't have any income. And when you don't have any income, you can't pay off your debt. And so you're there for like forever until the last penny. I say you will never get out. You're never going to get out of debtor's prison. So should you stand your ground and I'll show them, well, they need to ask my forgiveness. Well, you just ended up in jail for the rest of your life. He's saying, so why don't you humble yourself? Why don't you settle it like right now? So there's, these are both about right relationships and the priority of right relationships in the kingdom. But they emphasize two different things. The first illustration is about the priority. Hey, this is worth skipping church over. That's what he's saying. More than that. None of us traveled a week. None of, okay, so it's that times a, a thousand. But that's what he's saying. I mean, there's reasons to miss church. Uh, if you're sick, uh, if, if your kid has a river of life coming out of their nose, do not take them to our children's ministry, please. If you're sick, don't come cough on all us and give us the flu. We'll pray for you at a distance. Um, if you're on vacation, which you should be, you should take some vacations and miss. That's a good reason to miss church. So those are two pretty good reasons, I think. Here's a third reason. Someone has an offense with you, and they can only meet with you at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sunday. Do not come to church. Go get that right. Get that right. Have that meeting. Have that meeting. That's what he's saying. So it's the priority of right relationships. The second one, priority, he's he's tying it up there with worship, uh, corporate gathered worship. The second one would be the urgency. Do it now. Because if you don't, there's going to come a time it's too late and you're going to face judgment. Now, he's not just talking about a civil authority there. When he says it'll be too late, that urgency, he also has in view eternal judgment. So if you're unwilling to get any of your relationships right, if you're just like, I don't care about that kind of thing, then you have to ask, do I even know Christ? Is the Spirit of God even in me? We all have some broken relationships at times in our lives, for sure. But if this is not a matter to us, Jesus says in the kingdom, this has to matter. If it's not a matter to us, then there's a warning here. Deal with this now while you can be right with others because it reflects where our heart is at before, where our heart is before the Lord. So the tip of the iceberg, the visible part above the waterline, do not murder people. Below the waterline, don't be angry. Don't speak in a way that demeans others' intelligence or their character, that, uh, that dehumanizes them, looks down upon them. Below the surface is making love a priority in relationships. The kingdom ethic of love is far different than the Pharisees' ethic of external obedience. God calls us to be integrated people, to be whole. That's why I titled this, Holiness is Wholeness. There's sort of two ways to think about an integrated life. One would be, I'm a Christian in all my responsibilities in life. So I'm not just a Christian on Sunday morning but I'm going to go home with my wife and I'm going to be a Christian. I'm called to be a Christian at home in a marriage. And I'm going to be with some friends tonight. And so I'm called to be a Christian when I'm with my friends tonight. And then uh, I'll go to work this week. I'm called to be a Christian at work. 
And uh, so in all of my life, I'm called to be Christian, not just in the spiritual part. That's one way of talking about an integrated life. Here's another way to talk about an integrated life, and this is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount's not quite speaking in that way as much as it's speaking this way. The integration of interior and exterior. Integrate interior and exterior, that my motives are changed and my motives are to glorify the Lord and serve other people. That's really important because I could do the integration externally. I could go home and be a really nice guy to my wife uh, and play Christian on the inside. I'm really angry. I could get with my friends tonight and, you know, act like, hey, I'm a really loving guy or something. But just because I'm saying Jesus stuff, Christianese in that meeting, that gathering, doesn't mean I'm an integrated person in this way. Because this way is, it's in my heart to love. It's in my heart to cult. So there's two ways of thinking about this. And the Pharisees, they were, they were disintegrated. They weren't integrated. They had the external thing above the water going on. They didn't have below the water. They weren't concerned about motive. Holiness is wholeness. Wholeness is my interior is touched by grace. Jesus loves me and forgives me. That touches my heart so that I want to love and forgive others. And so then I turn, and based on what God has done in my heart, I then want to be the kind of person that reconciles relationships, that speaks kindly and graciously, that isn't angry but is patient and forgiving. That all comes from a changed interior is what he's saying. And that's below the surface and often can't be seen. Kingdom living is following Jesus from the inside out. From the inside out. God loves us in Christ He leads us to a life of love from the heart, and that's why anger and insults and unresolved offenses rise to the level about speaking of judgment like Jesus does. So how do we apply this? Well, here's the first step. Agree with Jesus. That's always a good answer. Agree with Jesus. He views the angry heart and the insulting tongue as a cause for judgment. So just see that that is very serious, and I never grow when I minimize things. Well, I'm only angry because they made me angry. I only said that because I was on my last nerve, and if they they hadn't, no, no, that's minimizing. I want to say, yes, Jesus, murder is subject to your judgment. So if we, when Jesus says that, who all's physically committed murder? Probably very few hands in the crowd, if any went up. But when he goes, who's, who's been angry? Every hand goes up. So we all need a savior. We agree with him of the seriousness. Number two, we repent from the heart. Kingdom living is following Jesus from the inside out. So the problem is my, my heart inside. I, I want something and I don't get it, so I grow angry. Someone's not doing what I want, when I want, how I want, and so I grow angry. That's usually the cause of anger, for the, the temptation of anger for me that I respond. Someone's not doing what I want, when I want, how I want. Usually one of those categories. But from the heart... We say, Lord, what have you done for me? Embrace the gospel ultimately and repent. We we, we can so easily judge others, critique others, and that spills out in our words, that spills out in our texts, that spills out in our social media posts. Or maybe we're passive. We know people have things against us, but we're just passive. Out of sight, out of mind. I'm not going to deal with that. Happened a long time ago. I'm probably not going to see that person. Notice also that he says, if you remember somebody has something against you, uh, 
leave your, leave your gift at the altar. He says, if you're offering, uh, and then remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift. He doesn't say, if you remember your brother has a justifiable, or your sister, justifiable, ironclad, very clear, 100% accurate accusation against you. If that's what he said, most of us would be okay because nobody has that kind of judgment but God, accurate. He says whether it's justified or not, usually it's partially justified, but whether it's justified or not, go get right. So agree with Jesus, ask God to turn our heart to him and receive his forgiveness. Here's the good news. The same Jesus who gives these commands is the same Jesus that says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who see their need for God will receive his blessing, his care, his help. The same Jesus who gives these commands also gave his life for those who have not held up this law. He gives his life for the guilty. This is the wonderful truth that the same Jesus that says, if you're angry, you're subject to judgment, also died for every angry thought you've ever had. The same Jesus who said, don't call people empty-headed or foolish, don't belittle them and and, and speak in a condescending, self-righteous way, that Jesus died for every insult, every idle word, everyone that came across our lips, everyone that we thought of but held back and didn't say, everyone we texted that only one person saw that, every time we put something on social media or almost put it on there and still harbored it in our heart. Every one of those he died for. Every time we didn't go get right with someone who had an offense to us, Jesus died for that passivity, that failure to bring our relationships together. Every damaging world, every unreconciled relationship, Jesus died for those. And not only that, Jesus fully obeyed this law. He came to fulfill the law. So Jesus was never sinfully angry. Jesus never used words that harmed people, that belittled them, that killed them spiritually. He used words that ultimately built people up. Uh, Jesus, well, he didn't sin against people, so there wasn't any any, uh, reconciliation between him and anybody else, but he did come to us when we were his enemies and make us his friends. So think of what Christ has done for us, and then in response to that, we ask him to change our hearts so that we live that way towards others as well. He fulfilled the law and we are in him. So the Lord looks at us and declares us righteous. And from that position of declared righteousness, we can now live out our life in pursuing others by love. He grants us the power to obey. The last one is pursue love. So agree with him, repent from the heart, receive forgiveness, and pursue love. Listen, we should expect progress. I read this like you. I read it all week. I was like, wow, this is really convicting. But we should expect, because Jesus is in us by the Spirit, because he's changing us, we should expect that we can grow in this and that that broken relationship by the power of God can be restored. There's nothing bigger than you were dead and now you're alive. There's nothing bigger than that. If Christ can do that, he can work out that relationship or he can at least enable you to do all that is within your power to be at peace with all people. He can do that. So he can change our speech. Well, man, I I say mean things to people all the time. Well, the Lord can change our speech if we're asking for his help and we're we're, uh, going to his scripture. We're asking for others to help us as well. He can help us. So we should expect growth over time. The other thing I would say is that we're called to cultivate healthy relationships, but sometimes healthy relationships don't come quickly. 
it can happen in stages. And so we need to celebrate the little positive movement in a relationship, the little positive changes that are happening. We need to celebrate the baby steps of what God is doing in our relationships. Scott McKnight says, nothing expresses kingdom realities more than reconciled relations. I was going to close with some illustrations that were sort of cultural, because I think there are cultural issues here at stake. I mean, I kind of did one, talked about one area of injustice. I was going to have several to close with. Uh, I think I'll do that on the podcast. We do a podcast that follows the sermon, a conversation. I think I'll do that there, because then I read the rest of McKnight's statement and thought, wow, this is where we are, many of us are right now on Thanksgiving week. He said, it's easy to to think of massive cultural issues, and he addresses cultural issues, we should. But he says, we would do better to ponder the ordinariness of Jesus' examples, immediately suspending what we are doing to find peace with our own relations. What comes to mind for me are the relations of husbands and wives, the relationships of fathers and mothers to children, of sibling relations, of the relationships of neighbors and community members and those with whom we work. It's far too easy to ponder reconciliation of monstrous problems like those in Rwanda than it is to ponder the day-to-day pursuit of peace and reconciliation in our own relations. The global issues flow out of local and personal issues. There's a place to address more global issues for sure, but in this passage, in the way Jesus talks here specifically, your brother's offended with you, your words, your anger. I think it's good to just start with who's, who's around the table this Thursday at Thanksgiving. And if you've got one of those deals where you're with one family one time and one family another, then who's around the table at Christmas? And uh, who's going to be at the office Christmas party and the people you are with? And how's it going with that neighbor that was angry for something we did? Let's start with those folks and let God work there. God's calling me to act and calling you to act in repairing those broken relationships. Jared, if you want to come now, we're going to close with singing. But he's causing us to respond to those relationships and to cultivate healthy ones. And the good news is there is tremendous hope in this area. We can feel so discouraged about it, but there's tremendous hope. The tomb is empty. Jesus rose to not only forgive our sin, but to make us new people. And he delights. Nothing displays the kingdom like unified kingdom relations and uh, repentance and unity and this sort of thing. So we're going to sing, let's stand together. And we're going to sing a prayer to the Lord. We're going to sing a prayer to the Lord, asking him to help us in whatever we're thinking. And this is not rocket science. I don't need to give a list of things. Whatever face was like showing up in your mind through this whole sermon, that's who the Lord wants you to pray for and move towards. It's not hard. Most of us have someone whose face came up. So let's pray about, Lord, help us. Let's confess our need for him. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.